Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Bighorn Podcast, featuring amazing people with extraordinary stories. I'm Marty Lockman, and I have had the honor of interviewing these accomplished people as they tell their stories in their own words. We've been talking to our guests about their lives and the various twists and turns that have occurred that brought them to this point in their journey. We talk a lot that everyone has a story, and by sharing these stories, we can learn, feel, and grow, and know them in a way that gives us all a greater connection to them and to our community. This episode, once again, is brought to you with the support of Lees & Son Fine Jewelers, a member of our community for over 70 years. Today's guest is Monsignor Howard Lincoln of Sacred Heart Church in Palm Desert. Monsignor Lincoln has been an integral part of our desert community since 1991 and a charismatic personality that has touched so many people. Monsignor, thank you so much for coming in today. Your story, which starts in Tacoma, Washington, through an untraditional path, has brought you to have the tremendous impact you have had on the greater desert community. Monsignor, please share your story. Well, Marty, I was born, as you mentioned, in Tacoma, Washington. And uh, actually, we moved to Gig Harbor uh, on Wallachet Bay, which was a terrific place to grow up. It was, we looked, overlooked Mount Rainier. We had a pea grapple beach. We lived right on the water. We had three acres of Land, we had a brand new home, and the home cost $15,000 when we first moved there. And that's where I grew up, perfect setting. But it was a very, very, very Protestant family. My uh, mother's family moved from West Virginia, and they were devout Protestants. And make no mistake about it, they were, they were a little bit anti-Semitic, but they were much more anti-Catholic. And I remember distinctly when JFK was elected, I'm with my mom and we're watching the election results. And she's sitting on my left and I'm, I'm what, 14 years old. And she's crying because she knows that with the election of John F. Kennedy, really the Pope is gonna run the United States. And mom knew that. Well, later on, uh, I remember we stood on the beach and my mother pointed across the bay. And she said, honey, those are where the Flynns live, and they're building a home over there. And she said, you know, Howie, the Flynns are Catholic, but they're our friends. And so as an eight-year-old, as an eight-year-old, I knew that those rotten Catholics worshiped Mary, and that we Protestants, we were the ones who really were saved, and we did that by faith alone. And so I knew as an eight-year-old that, that, that those nuns were saying, if you say enough rosaries, by golly, you can get to heaven. And if you'd ask me then, in, even in my 20s, if you ask me if I'd ever be a Catholic priest, and I said, well, if fate had its way, all right, you've only got two avenues, just two. One is to be a Catholic priest. Is that possible? The other avenue is to be a mafia, member of the mafia. Now, I would not, it would not be exactly my choice, but if you'd asked me then, no kidding, I would have said there's absolutely no way in this world I'd ever be a Catholic priest. And on those two choices... If just fate had its way, I would be a mafia guy. That's the absolute truth. There's no way in the world I'd ever be a Catholic priest. It was absolutely out of the question. Forget it. That's amazing. 
What now transpires in your younger life that moves you in this direction? I think that, uh, well, first of all, my, my father, my father died when I was nine years old. And uh, I didn't know him that well. He was the youngest vice president of a national bank in the United States at a time when I think that meant something. And apparently he was incredibly charismatic. And I know when he died, he died in 1955. Um, after he died, we received uh, letters from people that even I knew their names then. Uh, one was Dog Hammarskjöld, who I believe was the Secretary General of the United Nations. Also, Jimmy Durante wrote my mother a letter of condolence. And my dad apparently was a remarkable man who smoked. He had smoked since he was 15 years old. He smoked four packs of parliaments a day, and he died at age 41. And one of the great, I think, regrets of my life is that I did not know my father that well, and I wish I had him. After Dad died, he left, um, in 1955, $50,000 of insurance money. My father gave it to the bank that my dad had worked at and said, invest it. And I remember in 1961, for some reason I remember this figure, we were worth $120,000, which in 1961 was quite a bit of dough. Our house was paid for. My mother worked. She placed um, kids for adoption, and she probably made five or 6000 a year. I think our cars were paid for, and so we were definitely upper middle class. And my mother was a huge believer in um, seeing the world and seeing how other people lived. And she knew, she knew that her kids, I had a little sister, just two kids and one mom, she knew that we had it, that we didn't understand really how good we had it. We had steak whenever we wanted it. Uh, I went to private schools. Uh, if we wanted things and she thought it was okay, we always had the dough to pay for it. And so my mother took my father's insurance money. And when I was 17 and my sister was 12, she took us, believe it or not, around the world. And we spent virtually all of that summer going around the world. We were, believe it or not, in something like 30 countries in about two months. And one of the first stops we made was in Calcutta, India. And Mom did that on purpose. And I remember we arrived in Calcutta, India at night. And my sister and I got up early in the morning and we just walked to the front of the hotel. And there was a man with a gun standing right at the entrance to the hotel. And my sister and I look at each other and what in the world is this? He's guarding the hotel. Well, then we looked across the street and, and this is not an exaggeration at all. We looked across the street and here comes a cart, a horse-drawn cart, and there's bodies in the cart. And the driver would stop. Uh, he stopped right in front of the hotel. And right across the street, there were people on the sidewalk who had slept there all night. He got out of the cart. He would kick the bodies. And if they didn't move, he'd pick the body up, and he'd throw it in the cart, and then we'd go to the next body on down the street. And my sister and I, who had had no conception of how good we had it, started to realize that life in other parts of the world was much, much different than ours. And even my 12-year-old sister got that, and I certainly did at 17. And how good we had it. And we felt kind of just of a tinge of a perhaps, just a tinge in a teeny little way that I felt maybe, maybe I should serve God in some manner. That God created this world, and these people have it so different than I did. And, and I felt that maybe 
as I saw them carted away, maybe later on I should do something. I matriculated to a private high school called Charles Wright in Tacoma, Washington, and um, I decided I'd had it with Washington State. It was time to go to Hollywood. I wanted to meet Annette Funicello, and I wanted to meet blonde surfer girls. And I decided that um, I'm out of Washington State. At age 18, I felt that there were basically five things that I wanted in my life. I wanted a beautiful blonde wife. I wanted money. I wanted a Ferrari. I wanted to live the Los. I wanted to belong to the Los Angeles Country Club, and I wanted to have a house in Beverly Hills. I figured if I got that, I've got it made. Well, I had a childhood sweetheart. Her name was Wendy, and we had dated for seven years. By the time I was 22 years old, she went to school in Bellingham, Washington, while I'm in Los Angeles, down in in Claremont and Pomona. But we always kept together, and so at age 22. I was married to this incredible lady. And for three years, we had the greatest marriage, I think, in the state of California. We lived in San Diego, I was in law school, and we were just terrific. This was during the Vietnam War, and I just went really for an officer's basic back to Kentucky. And during that period, we don't know what happened, but she came back and met me uh, in Kentucky, and she said it was like she went through some sort of a big breakdown And she said, honey, that's how we talked, honey, I think I want to separate. Eventually, it broke my heart, but eventually, we, we, so she filed divorce papers. And even during the divorce, we would have lunch together. And I remember offering her my Bank AmeriCard. I said, here, sweetheart, I trust you, you keep this for a year. And she pushed it back across the table and said, no, honey, I'm okay. Well, the divorce was final after nine months. And then she um, called me up. One week after the divorce was final, and she said, Hi, sweetheart, I want you to court me again. And believe it or not, we dated for the next six years. And then she went up to Seattle, where her family was. Now, this was in 1971 that we were divorced. And whenever to this day I go up to Seattle, I always take Wendy out to dinner or out to lunch. She always calls me my birthday and stuff like that. And if you got to be divorced, I think we're the way to go. Well, after that... My first job was with the court trust department of United California Bank. And I was kind of a flunky there, but that meant I got to go out and help probate the, the estates. One of the first estates that I was involved with was with a man named Harold Lloyd. I had never heard of Harold Lloyd. And Harold Lloyd, of course, was a, a, a silent string comedian. And that day and age, in the late 20s and early 30s, I think he was right behind Charlie Chaplin and Mary Pickford in terms of popularity. He was extremely popular. But the one thing he did that he was so wise, he was the first movie star, I believe, to incorporate his own films. So in 1932, I remember the year, Harold Lloyd paid, I believe this is correct, $320,000, a ton of money in those days, for a house in Beverly Hills. And um, because I was sort of a flunky on the, pro- on the probate team, I was out at the Harold Lloyd estate a lot. And I later on wormed my way into Mary Pickford's home and Jack Warner's home, which was sort of next door. And these places didn't remotely compare to the 17 acres and the 100-foot waterfall that Harold Lloyd had on his estate. He had a little nine-hole golf course even there. And you'd walk underneath, it's hard to explain, you'd walk underneath his basement in this long hallway and you'd come out on, the, on sort of this cliff that was the edge of his house, and you'd look down 
on this waterfall and this nine-hole golf course. And later on, uh, I mean, except for San Simeon, this, there was no place like the Harold Lloyd Estate. And I th- looked at this and I said, man, this is just what I want, right? Now all I need is the blonde and the Ferrari and the country club membership, and I'm in business. This is the summit, right? But God used this because I sort of started even taking that for granted. And I remember he, Harold Lloyd had this huge lawn, and I found one of his, I found a set of golf clubs, and I, you could hit a full nine iron from one side of his lawn to the other. But after a while, and I knew it, that I started taking all this for granted. And I felt, I felt even then that maybe God was telling me something. Certainly not to be a Catholic priest, no way. But maybe the Harold Lloyd estate and so forth, that there was more to life than just this. So later on, I was a flunky at Canvassy Television in Burbank, I was sort of number five of a four-man staff. It was called The Sunday Show, and I believe in the middle 70s, late middle 70s, that was the largest local show, I think, in the nation. I know we had a very big audience. And the way it worked was, if you were the anchor man, in those days it was just anchor men, of KMBC Television, then you were our host on The Sunday Show, which we taped on Sundays. And Tom Brokaw, for example, was our first host. Well, I was exposed because of The Sunday Show to virtually every star you could imagine. We had Bob Hope, we had John Wayne, we had Sammy Davis Jr., we had uh, politicians, everybody. And since I was the flunky, I was the guy that got to drive them around. And what I think I learned working at KNBC was A, I didn't have the talent really for that business, and most importantly, I didn't have the passion. One of our guests that we'd have on um, St. Patrick's Day was named Peter Monaghan. Peter owned a pub, it's what he called it, Monaghan's Irish Pub in Pasadena. Uh, it was no ordinary pub, though. In fact, it was a large restaurant. We seated about 250 people. Peter, maybe because he was tired of interviewing, uh, offered me a job at Monaghan's. And I loved to cook, and I thought, well, I'll go there and be a cook. Well, I wound up as, this was only my title, the general manager. And basically, I was in charge of everything that was public. It was at Monaghan's, where I worked for five years, that I learned really to be a priest. And at Monaghan's, my gracious, we, uh, we were in LA Magazine. We were considered probably the yuppie pickup bar in all of Southern California, certainly one of them. We were perfect in the sense that our, our customers were stockbrokers, bankers, insurance salesmen. That's the greatest clientele you can have. In those days, of course, they came there and they could, they could write off their drinks and so forth. And we had O.J. Simpson was one of our customers, 60 Minutes taped there. One of the big days of my life, we had the Playboy Bunny that came in one night. And I think that also, though I remember, we had a 21-year-old. And the 21-year-old, like, like a lot of us, he wanted to be a big shot. And he wanted to be recognized whenever he came into the restaurant. And he wanted to be called by his name. And I, I, there's an old saying, to be a regular at a restaurant, all you have to do is be a regular. Everybody's money is the same, com- is the same color. And so he, he would come to the restaurant, and I remember distinctly, he was 21 because I carded him. And in those days, um, business people mostly drank vodka, because when you drink vodka, you go back to work, and basically you can't smell it. Well, the 21-year-olds started coming to Monaghan's a lot. And one year after he started going... I recognized suddenly that he was 
drinking a great deal. I feel he was drinking about two liters of vodka every three or four days, and that's a huge amount. And he'd done this under my watch. He did it because whenever he came there, I greeted him. I knew his name. I made him feel important. He got his own table because Howard was there and because I recognized him. And I thought again, maybe even linked to the Harold Lloyd estate, is this how I really want to spend my life? Is this really what I want to do? By no means in the world was I getting close to going to seminary, but I did wonder, is this really what it's all about? So there was a man that saved me. He was one of our customers, and this is in 19, uh, 1981. He said, come on, Howard, let's go to Europe. I want to borrow $200 million. He wanted to buy, I believe it was 14,000 acres on the big island of Hawaii. So in those days, you could not borrow $200 million from a single bank in the United States. You had to have a, have a consortium of banks. So if, however, if you went to Belgium or to Zurich, you could borrow it from one bank. So we carried over to Europe. He asked me to join him and $200 million of CDs in a briefcase. I saw them. I carried them. And so we're over there. And I felt this is kind of my last chance to make a lot of money. We're going to make a lot of money. We're going to buy some land on a wire. We're going to fix it up a bit. And then we're going to sell it. And then um, the loan that we were after was really was worth much more than we could get. The, we were borrowing $200 million. The property was much cheaper than that. And it looked like for a while we were going to get the $200 million. And we were with a man um, whose name I, I won't mention, but he was an agent. He was an agent actually out of England. We had another agent um, that was represented as well. And this is, we'd been there for a gracious three weeks or so, and we're having dinner at, at, at a Zurich, at the Zurich Hilton, actually. And there were four of us at the table. One, the other agent and, and the person who was the principal in borrowing this money left the table. And so the last agent there uh, looked at me, and we're after $200 million, and he, of course, is going to get a commission, a big commission, get a fee for arranging this loan. And he looked at me, and this is what he said, exact words, I believe. I, Howard, he said, I really like you very, very much, but if I do not get my commission, I'm going to have you and the agent and the principal assassinated. And you know, Howard, I can do it. And the truth is, even to this day, I have no doubt that he could do it. Well, I, I thought again, maybe this isn't what the Lord wants me to do. But I, I'm still in a query about it. And so I prayed. Uh, and those, I'm, at this time, I'm 31 years old or so. And I, didn't, I wasn't sure I believed in Jesus at all. I, God was no problem. I certainly believed in God. But Christ, I wasn't too sure about at all. So I prayed to Jesus. And I said, look, Lord, if you're real, I have no trouble believing in God. But if you're real... Prove yourself to me. Give me a sign. And you, I, I don't recommend people really do that to Jesus. But for me, I prayed maybe 30 seconds a day for a week. You know, prove yourself to me. Well, it only took about a week or two, and little things started happening. Uh, I'd go over a hill after I did my little 30-second prayer, and there would be a church. And I thought, well, that's just a coincidence. But there was one Saturday morning. It was about 10.30 in the morning. And I'm going to a bookstore on Colorado Boulevard. And I'm walking down Lake Avenue in uh, Pasadena. And as I'm walking down, I get to Union Avenue, which is just a little cross street of Lake, Lake Avenue. 
And I, there's a Del Taco across the street. It's still there, as a matter of fact. And as I stepped into the crosswalk on Union Avenue and Lake Avenue, and this is absolutely, totally true, Christ joined me on my left-hand side. And I mean this literally. I'm more sure that Jesus was with me on my left-hand side that I'm sure that I'm in this room right now uh, recording this. I'm more sure that Christ was there than I am that people looking at me right now. I did not see him, but I felt an incredible, unbelievable sense of peace, a peace beyond imagination that absolutely nothing, nothing could hurt me because Christ was on my left-hand side. And I kept on walking across the crosswalk, and you think I would stop. But in the middle of the crosswalk, I thought to myself, if there were six men with machine guns on the other side of, of Union Street, and they're literally pointing the machine guns at me, it would have absolutely, totally been meaningless because Jesus was there. That was the sense of peace that I felt. And I, I think that you, you'd think after, so I, I went across the crosswalk, I stepped onto the sidewalk, I took a right in front of Del Taco, and Jesus left, just like that, he was gone. But you would think that I'd run to seminary right after that, but I didn't. But at least I started going to church. In my 20s, I virtually never went to church unless I was trying to impress a girlfriend. And it seemed like most of my girlfriends were Catholic. And so I would try to impress them what a good holy guy I was, and I would go to church with them. But I still wanted the beautiful blonde wife. I still wanted the house in Beverly Hills. I wanted the money, but at least I was starting to follow Christ. I was starting to follow some form of church. But again, going back, I want to emphasize, I cannot emphasize this strongly enough. Christ really was there. I didn't see him, but the sense of peace I felt was beyond words. I just cannot describe it. And I distinctly remember even now, so many decades later, that feeling that nothing whatsoever could hurt me. And my guess is, my hope is, after we die, we're going to have that feeling. Well, during this time, I certainly dated. And I dated, I dated girls. As I mentioned, most of them were Catholic. And I'd spent my, my five years at Monaghan's, and I felt it was time to move on. And I even felt, after this, I started going back to church. Maybe, just maybe, I should try to go to seminary. Maybe I want to be an Episcopal priest, certainly not a Catholic, but maybe an Episcopal. I'd gone to church for about five years, and I'm now about 35, and it's time to go to, it's time, really. Let's go back, and let's go to, to, to seminary. Well, Fuller Seminary is in Pasadena. I'd worked at Monaghan's for five years. Monaghan's reputation was so infamous and Fuller is the largest Protestant seminary at the time in the world, headquartered in Pasadena. I was immediately put on probation because I'd worked at Monaghan's for five years. I hadn't done anything wrong at all, but it was Monaghan's reputation. And so by the grace of God, um, somehow I matriculated through Fuller Seminary. And on occasions when I didn't have the money to register, it, was, it would seem like the computers would break down and I would be allowed to register. And I just somehow worked my way through there. I cleaned toilets, I answered telephones. I did stuff not like that. Not exactly Bel Air, but at least I was matriculating. And I got to a point where I would go to, to Korea 
every summer. So I went to Korea three times, and I enjoyed it. But I felt somehow that I was going to be ordained in Korea, that somehow I could serve God better if I was a Catholic. And I really started finally to thinking, should I really be a Catholic priest? And I, I, I'd already gone through seminary. I'm six months away from being ordained. Um, by this time, I have nine years of college. I have three degrees. And I figure if I want to be a Catholic priest, I'm a shoe in And nonetheless, I started, I mean, I, I fought with Christ about this, actually out loud, telling Jesus, look, I've done all this stuff for you. I've gone, to, it took me four years to matriculate through Fuller. And I, I'm telling Jesus, I don't know about this Catholic stuff. Why? Because this celibacy problem. I think this thing about, I would tell Christ very bluntly, celibacy, that's absolutely crazy. I'm not going to do it. It's not for me. Forget it, Lord. Just forget it. And remember, I'd been married, very happily married. So, however, all right, I felt strongly, actually, that God placed my heart. Come on, Lincoln. I want you to apply to the Catholic Church. Well, remember, I'd been, I'd been married and divorced. On the other hand, I had gracious, I can't remember, nine or ten years of college, all these degrees. I felt that I was a shoo-in to be selected for the Catholic Church. No problem whatsoever. I know a diocese will take me. To be a Catholic church, uh, priest is not, like, it's not like becoming a Protestant minister or even getting a job. You don't go to school first and then find the job. You're given a diocese and, in effect, promise a job if, you've, if you finish seminary. So the diocese has to take you first before the seminary does. So I apply. And I'm thinking, this is, this is you know, a slam dunk. No problem whatsoever. I applied to literally every diocese, I believe, west of Chicago. That might be a bit of an exaggeration, but certainly everything in the west, everything, Montana, Idaho, New Mexico, Arizona, parts of Texas, all of California, all of Oregon, all of Washington. Every diocese rejected me because in 1987, nobody but nobody wanted a divorced seminarian. Finally, this diocese, the Diocese of San Bernardino said, okay, we'll talk with you. No promises whatsoever, but at least we'll talk with you. And prior to that, I'd talked with Los Angeles. And I remember, bless his heart, the director of vocations walking me down the hall. He put his arm in my shoulder, put his hand on my shoulder. He said, you know, Howard, all the best at Fuller Seminary and all the best with your future, but you'll never be a Catholic priest in this diocese. Well, San Bernardino said, we're going to talk with you. And they did. And then the issue was, would St. John's Seminary, the seminary for Los Angeles, even talk to me? They've been in business for 50 years. They'd never, ever had a divorced seminarian. So I go to talk to St. John's. Somehow they took me. And my total time in seminary was nine and a half years. And uh, I, I was, I can't express this enough. I love what I do. Uh, it's such a privilege to be a Catholic priest. It's not something that, in a way, it's not something we even should be thanked for. We should be thanking God, thanking the seminary, thanking our people. What we get to do as Catholic priests is such a privilege. And you can do so much good. And I just categorically love what I do. I'm the luckiest guy in the world. I think part of being a priest is 
is dealing with last rites. And it's such a privilege to get to do last rites. And I do about five a week. And when we do funerals, it's my hope that people walk out of the church feeling better about their own dying than they did when they walked into the church. I think that in terms of our lives and in terms of how we live our lives, in terms of the end of our lives, the image of a calendar can maybe be effective. And I've used this before, and I must give credit to, a, to one of my teachers at Fuller Seminary. His name was Lewis Smeads. So this is his image that he taught our class about a calendar. And a calendar, of course, I think all of us can picture a calendar in our minds. It is pages after page of blank squares. And each square, of course, represents a day. And each square has a number to tell me which day of the month I'm in at that moment. And each, on each square of my calendar, there, there's a frame for me, that little box, that little square. And that little square represents an episode of my life. And before I'm through with the calendar, I will fill the squares of my calendar, in my case with masses that I celebrate, with people that I eat dinner with, with committee meetings and prayer and stuff, hopefully some golf, and, and stuff that I, I must do and cannot afford to forget. And I also fill the squares of my calendar with things that I do not write down for me to remember. I fill the, the squares of my calendar with cups of coffee, with praying, with gestures, I hope, of kindness to my neighbors. But whatever I do, it has to fit into one of the squares of my calendar. I live in my calendar, like we all do, one square at a time. The four lines that make up the squares on the walls of my calendar, of course, are time. And in those squares, I organize my life. Everything that I do has to fit into one square of my calendar each day. I cannot straddle the lines of my calendar. Each square of my calendar has also kind of an invisible door, and it leads from that square into the next square. And in a silent stroke at midnight, that invisible door opens, and I'm pulled through it, sucked into the next square in the line. And there again, I fill the time frames that seal me, that, that, that are filled with my business, just as I did the square before. As I get older, the squares in my calendar seem to get smaller. As I get older, time seems to go so much quicker as I go from square to square in my calendar. As I get older, it's like someone pressed the accelerator for time, and it goes so much quicker. One day, one day, one of the squares of my calendar will be terminal. I do not know which square that will be. When that happens, there's only two things that can happen when I reach that last square in my calendar. Which two does happen pretty much tells me what life is and what our world is all about. So I think that we need all of us to face the last square of our calendar with great interest and great concentration. Those two possibilities we have to face with utter honesty. This is no time for make-believe. The first possibility when I walk into the last square of my calendar, the one that has no door, 
The first possibility is that I will be suffocated inside of it, in effect that the walls of that square will close in on me, and I may have during my life have strutted my petty pace each day, only to be seduced into this blank square that silences my sounds forever into a silent oblivion. This could be what happens to me so many squares from now, and if it happens to me, it's likely to happen to many people who slide into that final square of their calendar. But there is a second possibility. When I come to the last square, I will discover that the reason that last square has no door is that that last square has no walls to fit into. That the four unmovable lines that sealed me inside all the other frames, they're erased. The last day of my life turns out to be the beginning of a new life in a new dimension, free somehow of the walls that regulated time which have now fallen away. It turns out the last square of my calendar is not death. It's a new dimension of life. Our hope, regardless of your faith, our hope, even if you have no faith, you still have hope, and it's fixed on the last square of that calendar, of our calendar. Hope bets that that last square is not a closed door, commonly called a coffin, but it's a front door to a world totally beyond our imagination that includes that sense of peace that I felt so long ago when Christ walked across the crosswalk with me in Pasadena. And that gift of hope is fixed on that final square of your calendar, and only hope can take away the dread of that last square. All the hope we have for better times in between are human hopes, and human hoping always invites human doubting into it. But we can be absolutely sure only that everything is going to be all right in the end. And as a Catholic priest, not just as a Catholic priest, I'm speaking as a human being, I absolutely know, positive, that everything is going to be all right in the end. And the vision of the last square of our calendar sheds sort of its light on all the squares in between. We live in hope, and hope lights up our lives. We see each square differently because we see the last square as an entry into a new world. And in a way, I know it's going to be all right with me now, even though in my life everything may, may be all wrong, because I know that in the end on that last square, Everything is going to be all right in God's new world, God's new future, God's new heaven. And so I hope with human hope that all the people that I see, so many of whom are in pain, are dying. We've just lost a 28-year-old who was a single child of a mom who's also lost her husband. I hope with a human hope somehow that I can be a good priest to her and give her a sense of peace. I do that with human hope. It is with human hope that I, I hope that my community will be a fair place for people to live, a place where people will help each other, where people will be fair to each other, where people will have both enough to eat and someone to love them. But I doubt on this earth I will ever find such a community. I hope with a worldly hope that we all love each other with a love that finds its highest pleasure 
when other, pe- other people have what is rightly theirs, capped with inexpressible joy. That is my human hope for perfect justice for our present human family worth saving and healing. But I don't know if I'll ever see that, that hope. But the gift of hope makes every person as well and the whole human family of humanity very valuable in the vision of future rightness. I could say that, I think, in a better way. There is a sense that everyone is a unique, loving creation of God. And I, th- I think that that's so important that we know that as we deal with each other in each square of our calendar. I think that it's so important, too, in the squares of our calendar that um, we play a little bit in the squares of our calendar. That we, when we play, I hope, I think, we're modeling life in heaven. When it comes to this hope that we have, I think it makes our work also more meaningful as we go through the squares of our calendar. Um, it tells us, I think, that we cannot live by work alone. In fact, I urge anyone listening to let the squares of your calendar be meadows for dancing as well. Many people, I think, live without hope, whether it's Christian hope or some other type of hope. Some of them drink and drug themselves so they can forget the tedium of their squares lining up all the same one after another. Others fill their allotted squares with shopping and consuming. Still others maybe fill their squares with work and they become very rich and erotic and end up wondering aloud about the meaning of the squares of their calendar. Millions and millions of people fill up their squares with fretting and fuming. And the only real answer, I think, to human hope is the certain, in my case, Christian hope. And I believe that those who doubt are wrong. And I know it by experience that when we walk in the last square of our calendar, the last square of my life's agenda, there I will discover that this earth has become the kingdom of God and that our life will be changed. It will not be ended. And that when we die, there's really no such thing as death at all. Death is a corner turned. Death is not even a crisis, which is almost impossible for us to grasp. But when we die on this earth, we will never be as alive as we will be when we leave this earth. And anything that you've ever heard about heaven will absolutely pale in comparison to what you're now experiencing. And with God as your friend and heaven as your home, the day of your death will be sweeter than the day of your birth. Those are thoughts for all of us to give great consideration to. And now, Monsignor, I'd like to move forward in asking you some questions about various parts of your life and our community. Give us some thoughts on the first time that you met Artie Hubbard. Well, he was, he was first of all, very courteous. Uh, he was very direct. Um, and in subsequent meetings that I had with him, were meetings that or, or phone conversations that he instigated, and they were always to help someone else, to help a member of the club. And I think that it, it really humanizes his vision of my mind that he really cares about the members. And he would ask me to go see someone who had lost his wife, go see someone who was having real problems 
uh, with personal issues. And I got the clear impression this was a man who truly, truly cares about others. And there's a people that care. I think if I can expand a bit on this, um, people that really want to help rarely say something like this. If I can do anything, please give me a call. I think that truly helpful people never say that because it can, it can ring kind of hollow. Someone who wants to help doesn't wait to be called. And it's my impression of Mr. Hubbard that he doesn't wait to be called, that he initiates that help, that he's very kind, very kind, and I believe very sensitive. And perhaps that's a side of him that not everybody sees. You were kind enough to come up and bless the new clubhouse at the opening ceremony. And another attachment that you have to Bighorn is that you made a hole-in-one on our 17th hole <laughs> on the mountains. Could you just give some thoughts on both of those events as they relate to Bighorn and your connection? Well, it was an honor to be asked. Uh, Jim Gagan asked me if I would... If I would Bless the clubhouse, and gracious, I was delighted, and, and I'm, I'm thrilled to even get to go into the club. I, uh, I came here for the first time in 1999, and I, gosh, I felt, boy, is this ever over my head. And I was the first time ever when I'd hit golf balls in the driving range, and there was a caddy there cleaning my club after I'd used it. And, uh, oh, I thought, gosh, I'll never get back to this place again. And then I'm assigned here in 2001, and uh, I'm almost embarrassed to say this. I have a transponder. I can worm my way in here, and uh, I, I almost feel guilty when I come. I try just to use the driving range, but um, Mr. Hubbard uh, has allowed me to, to come, and I believe that if I can bring guests that will help the church and help the community, that I'm free to do that as well. I'm incredibly grateful for that. I also heard that when you did get your hole-in-one, you gave mention to that when you were... Um... Yeah, uh, I, I, we're blessed at Sacred Heart. We have, now this is on a real good weekend during the season, we would have an honest 10,000 people. And I felt <laughs> not exactly modest, but I had to mention to the folks that, that um, yes, I had a hole-in-one. It was, frankly, one of the greatest hole-in-ones in the history of golf. I mentioned that golf is a sacred game, that golf is in the Bible, that there's been a tragic mistranslation of the Hebrew, that golf is in Isaiah 2, that they'll beat their swords into five irons, not into plowshares, and that if you play golf, it helps your salvation. So that was all mentioned in front of thousands of people, yes. What qualities do you most admire in people? I think one is, is gratitude, gratitude for what we have and when my mother took my sister and I to Calcutta, India, it filled us with gratitude. And I think that we kind of shape our feeling of gratitude when we really think about, if I can use the word primordial, the fact of our existence, that the only reason, I don't know if we think about this enough, the only reason why any of us exist at all lies in the mystery of why the Creator should have desired to share the gift of life with us in the first place that every step I take is in the energy of God's mercy. Every breath in the atmosphere is because of grace. Every thought that I have, every feeling that I have, 
is through the power, really, of creative love. Every flower that I see, uh, every taste, the taste of each drop of water, um, when I sense the, the presence of people around us, all of this is through the gift of consciousness. And when we see all of this with our inner eye, I think that we have, will have no need for anyone to tell us that we ought to be grateful. So gratitude. Another, I think, is integrity, courage, uh, and grit. The famous John Wayne, true grit. And I think that there's a time in our lives, sooner or later, each of us is offered a moment for courage. And we will stand at a crossroads sometime. And when we're there at that crossroad, we're going to have to decide whether we're going to do the right thing, if that means putting us in a situation we do not want to be in at all, if we're going to do the right thing or if we're going to compromise. And I think it's so important to know that you can only compromise with some things. For example, you can cut butter in half and you still have the same butter, but you can't do that with a rose. If you cut a rose in half, it's no longer a rose. In other words, you cannot compromise in all things. And I admire people who have integrity, who have courage, who have grit. Who has had the greatest influence on your life? When my dad died when I was nine, um, the president of the bank that he worked for was named Al Saunders. And Al Saunders became a surrogate dad. I had a lot of great surrogate dads, but he was, he was the biggest influence. And what he, what he taught me were two things that I think are so important. The first is, is simply to be well-rounded, that it's important to experience as many things as you can and to meet as many people from different walks of life as you can. In our valley, we have, the, in a way, the perfect opportunity to do that. I believe, in fact, I'm quite certain that there's no place in North America where there's a greater, greater economic diversity between the greater Indian Wells, Palm Desert, Rancho Mirage, La Quinta area, perhaps centered in Indian Wells, Palm Desert. There's no greater economic diversity between this area and an area a scant 20 miles as the crow flies to the east, where we have Thermal and Coachella and Mecca, a completely different world, a world of trailer parks, a world where people have no sewer systems, a world where eight people live in a trailer of 600 square feet, a totally different world. And in my case, I need Bighorn, but I also need Mecca. I need both. And I think that well-roundedness to experience the greatest restaurant, maybe some three-star Michelin restaurant, and then go to In-N-Out Burger, to be well-rounded, to experience as many things as you possibly can in life. The other was that Al taught me was to listen. And I'm a huge believer in this. You're never going to learn anything if you're talking. And Al said to try to hang around people that were smarter than me, or at least in one area, could teach me. And he mentioned, and this, it's amazing now, I can remember this. I'm, a, I don't know, a nine or 10-year-old when this happened. And he talked about a, a dock worker uh, who was in San Francisco. And his name was Eric Hoffer. Hoffer worked in the docks, but Hoffer, even then, was considered a great philosopher. And Al said, he said, for some reason I knew who Hoffer was. And Al said, now, Howie, 
Remember, you have Eric Hoffer, who's a dock worker, but has a great philosophy. You need to listen. Listen to people that are smarter than you. Try to hang around people that are smarter than you and ask them questions and then listen. And I read, too, that you said, I'm not okay if my neighbor isn't. That is so true. Um, If people do not have sewer systems in the little trailer parks of Mecca, and nobody knows how many trailer parks are in the thermal Mecca Coachella area, they're hidden in the palm trees. I've visited them. I've seen them. Um, In the case of of Duroville, which is now torn down, I was there when they had, this was an area of 500 trailers, and there was no sewer system. And they would literally take their human waste outside to a huge field and burn it. And I can't remember the year, 2005, something like that, six. And I'm thinking, this is America in the 21st century, and they're burning their human waste outside. Um, In that area, there was another trailer park that I visited, and it rained a great deal. Again, this was a trailer park without a sewer system. So I know this is kind of not good to think about. They had piled their human waste on a very small hill. It had then rained. It rained pretty heavily. And it pushed that waste down this very small little hill, maybe five feet high, and it formed a lake, a lake of this human waste. The kids in that trailer park would walk through that little lake, which was maybe five or six inches high, and they go to Mecca Elementary School with scabs and you could with infection around their ankles because they'd moved through, they'd walked through that lake. And I took a lady from El Dorado there. I took her inside and I said, I said, uh, we need, I need whatever it was, $30,000. I can get rid of this. I can get rid of this. And right, right off the bat, she said, you've got it. I think that's kind of, I'm not okay if my neighbor's not okay. I'm not okay if it's not even remotely a level playing field between our cultures, between our worlds. I've got to do something to change it. And I don't think that's being a high-octane knee-jerk liberal. I think that's just doing what we must do, what our integrity really calls for, that we help our neighbor, particularly when our neighbor lives lives that are completely different than ours, so that everybody sort of has, at least, the same chance in life. With all that you have accomplished and the lives you've touched, what does the future look like for you? Marty, I don't know. I don't know. I'm going to stay in the valley. I'm going to be 74. I think I'm in very good shape. Uh, I, I, want, I, would like to, I would like to have kind of uh, the best of both worlds to kind of worm my way into country clubs and play golf occasionally, but also to work with the poor in the Mecca area, the Coachella area, maybe even the Indo area, to use whatever talents I have to, to help my neighbor. And I really feel very, very strongly that God will open the door that he wants me to walk through, and that will transpire sometime in this coming year during the summer. You also, as I know from our discussions, you're a great believer in physical fitness, or at least per- personal health. And I hear you go work out every morning. Yeah, I think that all of us are unique, loving creations of God. And I tell our school kids and our people that there's no one in the world 
exactly like you are. There's no one in the world, nor has there ever been, nor will there ever be a person with your physical looks, your personality, your DNA, your fingerprints, your unique loving creation of God. And because of that, part of our personal responsibility, I think, is to take care of ourselves. And Lord knows in the past I didn't always do that. But for the past seven or eight years, it has become an addiction. So I, I'm at um, World Gym at 4.45 in the morning, 4.50. We stand outside a group of, of psychos, us 12 or 15 people, and, that, uh, and we wait for it to open at 5, and then I go in there and do my little thing for 45 or 50 minutes. When I don't do it, I feel extremely guilty. It's the first good addiction I've ever had in my life. The last question I have. What advice would you give the 20-year-old Howard Lincoln? Perhaps the greatest thought is that God's love for you and your own integrity give you the freedom to live without other people's approval. And I, it's okay to dream because I believe the saddest words in the English language, the saddest words in the English language are, what if? What if? What if I'd tried? What might have been? If only I'd tried. What if? Some of the best words are, next time. Next time, I'm going to keep trying. And I think that I try to evidence in my, my 22 rejection letters to be a Catholic priest. I kept saying, next time. And so I would tell a 20-year-old, you know, if you want to, if you, you might say, well, I want to be an actor. I want to be a Hollywood movie star. And I think I would say, give it a try. First, though, complete your education, but give it a try. Don't let anyone tell you it's unrealistic. Don't even try. Don't ever in your life try to avoid what ifs, what ifs. It may be unrealistic, but for some it's become reality itself. So don't live a life of what if. Thank you so much, Monsignor Lincoln, for being here today. We certainly appreciate everything you do for our community, your continued involvement with everyone in the community to make life better for all of us. And we're, again, thankful for your thoughts, and we really appreciate your involvement. Also, thanks to Leeds & Son Fine Jeweler for their continued support. In the Bighorn Podcast, where we'll have more interesting people with extraordinary stories. Thank you, Marty, very much.